Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers. On this episode, we bring you two interviews with director Morgan Neville and cellist Yo-Yo Ma, who are behind the new documentary, The Music of Strangers, about Yo-Yo Ma's international group, The Silk Road Ensemble. Everybody is afraid of going somewhere they haven't gone before. But you build enough trust within a group, and sometimes you can turn fear into joy. First, I talked to Morgan Neville. He won the Oscar for his film 20 Feet from Stardom about backup singers. Before that, he had directed a steady output of music biographies for PBS and other outlets. They include films about Muddy Waters, Hank Williams, Carol Kane, and James Taylor. Last year, Morgan and Robert Gordon released the documentary The Best of Enemies about the television debates between Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley during the 1968 political conventions. Morgan also directed the documentary Keith Richards, Under the Influence, and produced the Chelsea Handler series Chelsea Does, both for Netflix. He's clearly on a roll. Morgan lives in Pasadena. I sat down with him recently in New York at the School of Visual Arts, where I teach in the MFA Social Documentary Program. In this interview, we talk about 20 Feet from Stardom, the music of strangers, and a visit he made to Prince last year. I look at your career right now. You did a Keith Richards documentary last year. You did Best of Enemies. You did 20 Feet from Stardom. You've got a new film with Yo-Yo Ma. You produced something with Chelsea Handler. Feels like you're in a moment where the documentary gods are shining on you and you can probably get some phone calls uh, returned. But I want to ask you if you can think back to a time when the documentary gods were not shining on you and and you were having difficulty getting projects going. Oh, it's not hard to remember. In fact, I wish I could forget it more than I can because um, I still find myself with that um, independent filmmaker um, reflex where it's impossible to say no to things <laughs> so because because of uh, memories when there weren't even things to say no to yeah when you're just hustling you know and i did that for years and you know i still hustle in different ways but i felt like and this is probably pretty common for a lot of independent filmmakers you spend half your time if you're lucky hustling and half your time actually making movies that'd be a great ratio yeah uh, in my days of Filmmaking, it was more like 80% hustling, 20% making movies. There were times like that. Right now, the best thing for me is that ratio is down to you know 90% making movies, 10% hustling, which for me, honestly, is the best thing about whatever momentum I've had is that it's just made me have more creative choices and not have to worry about those things so much. So can you take me back to a time when you were trying to get a project through that just no one was loving? I mean, there were so many. I mean, I literally have a file cabinet full of ideas and pitches. Uh, and it's funny, I pulled some out recently. <laughs> you know, there's one on crime fiction. I'm a huge fan of crime fiction. Mm-hmm. That I wanted to do a series of profiles of mystery writers. Um, I had a Raymond Chandler documentary I'd tried to do for years. And I filmed a bunch of interviews with everybody who's who knew Ray, who are all now gone. Um, I had a treatment for a big doc on the history of um, kind of the, the intersection of gay culture and pop music called Tutti Frutti hmm. um, that 
would have been great. And every few years now kind of comes back in some way. <laughs> um, so yeah, there were so many ideas that didn't happen. Um, but that's kind of the batting average of being an independent filmmaker. Mm-hmm. So when you got started on 20 Feet from Stardom, first of all, tell me how that project got started. It started because there was a producer named Gil Friesen, who was not a film producer. He was a music exec. He had been president of A&M Records. They called him the ampersand in A&M. And he was mm-hmm. the president. He held the company together. Uh, he had retired. He had made a lot of money. And he had this idea I'd heard about making a film about backup singers. So I sat down. I met with him. He told me the story of going to a Leonard Cohen concert after smoking a joint and watching the backup singers and saying, I wonder what their story is. And, you know, I I was interested by all this. And I said, well, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to make a film about backup singers. And I said, uh, that's interesting. What What's the story? What do you what do you want to do? And he said, I have no idea. That's your job. <laughs> and it really became one of these moments of stepping off the cliff. It's one of these things that having done this for this many years, you get a lot more comfortable kind of jumping off the cliff and hmm. expecting to catch an updraft somewhere because you have something to grab onto, an idea, a character, a story, something that you feel like you may not know exactly where it's going, but there's something to hang on to. And we actually spent a few months before we even really decided to make 20 feet, we spent a few months doing oral histories with backup singers just because there was no other way to even figure out what that world was about. I mean, right. there were no so books, there was nothing. Right, you had made films about Hank Williams and Muddy Waters, and there was a, a baseline of scholarship on those kinds of figures. Yeah, I mean, there were certain stories, and, you know, doing different documentaries are different. Sometimes you're doing something that's practically adapted from a book, or it's based on a story that's very well known. And that's, and then there are films like Best of Enemies, which is about a story that seems like we knew it, but actually turns out there was far, far more to it than mm-hmm. that we understood until we started making the film. But then there are films like this where it's really, really, you know, original scholarship or journalism or gumshoe work just to like figure out where, what is this universe about and who are the characters and what's the story. So in the, in the final film, you wind up profiling, featuring heavily maybe six or so characters. But to get to those six, how many people did you talk to? Probably 80. Wow. You know, they're, I interviewed a lot and a lot of amazing singers. And part of it is, and, you know, I had this experience too on, on my new film on Music of Strangers, that it's not that you pick the most compelling characters, though you try to pick them, but you have to pick characters whose stories work with everybody else's story. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, with 20 Feet, you know, I know we wanted singers who represented different eras of music and whose stories were similar enough that they were on this, the same kind of journey, but who had made different decisions about that journey and who had also sung on songs, ideally, that were known or iconic that we could hear them in our pop culture knowledge. So to check all those boxes was right. <laughs> very, very tough. You know, and that was part of the arduous editing process. So you, you've got this archive of these 80 interviews, which must form its own kind of history of backup singers beyond what, what's in the film. Anything to do with that? I mean, we've talked a lot. I mean, I, I've, I met, kept saying somebody should write a book just because I want somebody to take all this work <laughs> I did. And there were some, and there's at least one other story in there that I thought would make its own film. It was so good. It was so rich 
that but it was so big it didn't fit into 20 feet can you say what that is there was this one singer gloria jones who uh had sung the original hit of tainted love in the 60s who had toured with joe cocker he took her to london she met mark bolan and fell in love with him and joined t-rex and had a kid with him and she was part of this group of american singers who went to england in the same way you know jazz singers went to france Mm. in an earlier generation because they were not only um you know, England wasn't only colorblind, they actually were kind of almost fetishized by um, 60s British culture and people loved them. And, and uh, you know, they had tremendous success there and several of them actually stayed. There's a whole kind of strain of backup singers that went off to England and stayed. And Gloria, you know, Mark Boland produced an album on her. She became very successful. Uh, she was driving the car when uh, he was killed in a car accident. Mm. And Mark Boland's family, because they weren't married, even though they had a kid together, wrote her out of his oh, will, gosh. and she ended up with no money. And she also damaged her vocal cords in that accident oh. and wasn't able to sing. And now she runs the Mark Boland School of Music in Sierra Leone, Africa, where she teaches young African kids to sing American pop songs. So how crazy is that? <laughs> Was there a time where you were trying to get her story into 20 Feet from Stardom? Or did you give up on it early? No, there was a moment where I said, you know, I could see this whole documentary ending in Sierra Leone. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then I thought about that and said, okay, no, it just it can't do it. It's too big of a story. And I've told Gloria, I said, Gloria, someday somebody is going to tell your story because it is incredible. Was there a point in making 20 Feet from Stardom that you realized that that this could be bigger than anything you'd done before? Absolutely not. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, I don't know if it's my inner pessimist about these things or realist, but being an independent filmmaker long enough, you just feel like, you know, the dog that's been punished enough and you just say, okay, I'm happy for whatever scraps you throw my way. and literally, I mean, we had a couple of rough cut screenings along the way for friends and family. None of them were huge successes. Like, I didn't come out of any of those feeling like, God, we nailed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we screened it opening night at Sundance, and it just was like this religious experience. Mm-hmm. You know, we had the singers there. They hadn't seen the film before. Uh, it was just something happened with the film. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's never going to happen like that again. It was just some something happened, and I've had a lot of time to think about it and analyze it. You know, it's not just the film and their stories, but I feel like the chord that that film struck was profound because it was something that spoke to people way beyond music. Um, it spoke to people's personal experiences, which is most of us are backup singers. Most mm. of us aren't rock stars, and I think people from all over really saw some version of their own journey and trying to make peace with whatever life they have rather than the life they dreamt of having, Mm. you know, and that's kind of one of those messages that came out of 20 feet. But I can tell you for certain, we didn't know that going into the film. Interesting. (laughs) Now, one sad coda of that film is that the the man who had originated, Gil Friesen, passed away uh, before it played it at Sundance. Yeah, he um, passed away about a month before Sundance. And um, he got sick the last few months 
Um, he'd been perfectly healthy until then, and he knew we were at Sundance. He had actually bought tickets to go to Sundance, even though he was in the hospital at the time. Um, but it was very sad. Uh, though he did say to me, and this is part of his humor uh, in the hospital, he said, everybody who's dying of cancer should have a documentary they're working on because it's been the best medicine. You know, because literally I would go and meet with him in the hospital room and we'd look at footage and talk about things. And, you know, he watched everything up till the end. So, um, yeah, that was a really special experience. And, and we certainly could have made the film without him. I mean, not just because of his idea and backing, but just it was such a, and there's a whole other conversation, but from a production point of view, an incredibly difficult film to make. If anybody knows anything about music clearances, it's about as difficult as it gets. Well, indeed, several of your films that you've made aren't easy to see now because they're not in circulation because when rights were licensed, maybe they were only licensed for PBS or only licensed for a certain amount of time. And so it would be very expensive to bring those films back in circulation. Am I right? It would be more expensive than the money you could ever make uh, bringing them back, which is too bad. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's the good part and the bad part about making music documentaries is um, it's this incredible tool to have to be able to use music that people know. And it might bring an audience or a memory or emotion or nostalgia or all these different flavors with it. But um, but it's not cheap. And, you know, the number of times I made the argument that to a label or to a publisher that, you know, what I'm doing here is actually shining a light on this you know, intellectual property of yours by letting me showcase this songwriter. Um, the number of times I've made that argument and won that argument <laughs> are two very different things that, <laughs> that uh, you know, and it's part of the, you know, the music industry basically looking to squeeze a dime out of everything they can, even if it's just a short-term gain rather than a long-term investment. And um, it's tough. And 20 feet, just to say about from the music point of view, was as difficult as it gets because the music was from everywhere. You know, it's one thing to make a film about a songwriter or a label or a band where all the rights are kind of in you one place. You can have one conversation. Yeah. yeah. But nobody had a vested interest. Nobody was going to make money off of 20 feet. And nobody was beholden to the backup singer who sang on a session 40 years ago. So there was no there were no favors to call in that way. Our only tool was guilt, which we employed <laughs> endlessly to get people to pay something back for these singers mm, just to mm. just to give us a fair rate and at the end of the day we did we did well and we did well by them but it was not easy so one other question i want to ask for this chapter before i move on to your next film something that uh, came as a ripple out of 20 feet from stardom is that you had an encounter with Prince in the last year. You're the only person I know personally who had an encounter with Prince in the last year, so I'm obliged to ask you about every detail of that experience. Okay. These are one of those unexpected uh, moments. So Judith Hill, who's in 20 Feet, ended up, um, she had said in an interview that her dream producer was Prince. And one day she gets a call and Prince is on the phone and says, you know, Judith, and will you come to Paisley Park and let me record an album? And she did. She went and he produced her last album, which is great. Uh, I got a call from Judith maybe a year and change ago, and it was a Friday. And she said, Morgan, how you doing? I'm here at Paisley Park with Prince recording. 
can you come out and film some stuff to promote my album? <laughs> and I, I said, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm so in. And she said, can you be here Tuesday? Um, and I said, okay, I'll make that happen. You know, and I pushed some stuff around and uh, I scrambled a crew and we went out there and uh, we had two days at Paisley Park, which um, it's interesting because Prince, Prince sent a script of what he wanted to happen, this whole scenario with Judith being locked outside of Paisley Park. And it was written in like Prince speak with, you know, U's and twos and everything uh-huh. else. Um, and this idea that Judith was going to lock him out of Paisley Park at the end. Uh, and we ended up filming all this stuff. It was, I was like, okay, in for a penny, in for a pound. Like whatever happens, <laughs> happens. Um, and then we'd be filming with Judith and uh, I'd always heard the place had cameras everywhere. Hmm. And as soon as we would put down our gear and take a break, Prince would appear from like behind a curtain and he'd come up to me and say something. And we'd have a little 60 second conversation. And as soon as there was even a momentary lull, he would turn and sprint away and disappear again. In heels. In heels. This happened many times. Like the first time I thought it was a joke, but it happened over and over. And then Judas said, oh, that's what he does. You know, So the whole thing was so strange. But then when we had dinner break, a dinner break, uh, and we weren't filming. Uh, her band was there, and Prince was up with the band and basically kind of stopped them and went around to each member of the band and just gave them a slight adjustment. And often, you know, on the keyboards, on the drums, on the, like would play it himself and say, do it just like this. And then he'd say, hit it. And the band hit it, and it sounded just like Prince. You know, wow. I, I got the moment of seeing him do his thing, which was awesome um did that material come out in any it's way online you can see it you know it's a weird little eight minute video with kind of a music video in the middle it was like a two-day surreal adventure so it was fun <laughs> here's a bit from morgan's video called judith hill back in time the thing that was exciting about recording here was that it was an analog record he always says your voice is an analog voice i just about give it up It's classic soul with some funk. It's like a time machine. It's like me traveling back into an era of music that I truly loved. We'll be back in a minute with more from Morgan Neville, plus my conversation with Yo-Yo Ma. But first, a word from our sponsor. Our usual reader, Raphaela Nehausen, is on vacation this week, so I'm enlisting our six-year-old son, Bez. Pure Nonfiction is brought to you by Sundance Now Doc Club. Club. Watch hundreds of documentaries chosen by my dad, Tom Bowers. If you like music documentaries, you'll find classics like Let's Get Lost About Chet Baker and Stop Making Sense About the Talking Heads. You can watch Sundance Now Doc Club on your TV computer or phone. Go to docclub.com to sign up for a free trial. In Morgan Neville's new film, The Music of Strangers, Yo-Yo Ma describes having a midlife crisis that forced him to ask, what is the meaning of his music? That quest led him to form the Silk Road Ensemble in 2000. He gathered musicians from all parts of the world who shared his search for meaning. 
In the film, we meet four of them, from Syria, China, Iran, and Spain's territory of Galicia. In my programmer's job at the Toronto International Film Festival, I presented the film's world premiere last year. It's now playing in theaters. Let's talk about your new film, Music of Strangers. You've done these films on soul music, blues music, country music. It wouldn't necessarily point to you making a film about Yo-Yo Ma. At least, I think so. Do you think differently? Yeah, I do think differently. (laughs) Just because, you know, somebody once said, you know, God, you made a documentary about the blues and about country. How can you do that? Almost like you're supposed to only listen to one kind of music. But Hmm. I don't know anybody who's iPod or or iTunes or whatever they have now or Spotify account um, only has one kind of music. And for me, music, the more and more I've done this, I realize that the best music films aren't about music. You know, music is the language you tell the story in. But ultimately, you're telling a different story. And for me, this was a whole different type of musical language. So for me, it was exciting. It was a whole something I could both learn about, but tell a very, very different kind of story with a different kind of musical language. How did this project start? It started because I got a call from Yo-Yo's office four and a half years ago saying that he was interested in maybe filming a Silk Road concert and would I meet with him? And I said, that'd be great. I'd love to meet with him. I flew out to Boston and uh, went to his office. It was at nighttime. And there were several people there, uh, including some of the people from Silk Road. And I'm to tell the real story. After about 10 minutes, we just sat down and Yo-Yo said, Morgan, can you come over here? I want to discuss something serious with you. I said, okay. And I walked over to the corner with Yo-Yo and I didn't know him at all. And uh, we were standing by a little table with some wine and cheese. And he said, I just want you to know this Merlot is so fucking good. You really have to drink some of it. And I thought, well, that's not what I expected. <laughs> and an hour later, you know, we've been talking about philosophy and culture. And an hour after that, he's looking at pictures of my kids on my iPhone. And we ended up having hours of conversation. And by that, the end of that night, you know, I knew I would follow him with a camera anywhere. So in Music of Strangers, like 20 Feet from Stardom, you're dealing with a much larger group of musicians um, than we actually see in the film. There's a process of selection t- uh, to, to yeah, pick really. yeah. the four musicians besides Yo-Yo Ma who become prominent in Music of Strangers. Can you explain that process? I mean, it's actually, I don't know if I could have done this film had I not done 20 Feet because that kind of construction, it's its a similar type of construction. Uh, and it's a very complicated construction, this idea of having characters whose experiences, you know, they they reflect a diversity of geography and gender and music and experience. But at the same time, they all are on a similar journey. They've all come from this incredible tradition and culture, and they've all made the decision to take the road less traveled. And they've all gone off. You had this kind of call to call to action, call to journey, and had this experience. And then with that worldly knowledge returned back to that tradition in some way. And that's Yo-Yo's journey too. I mean, and as we were editing, we said, well, this is the hero's journey. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is Joseph Campbell. This is exactly what they're all going through. And that becomes, 
as I would say in the Oedipe, this is our meta story, you know, the meta arc of the characters, even though they have individual story beats and stories. So there's one character who grew up against the backdrop of China's cultural revolution, another who grew up against the Iranian revolution, another who's uh, from Syria, um, and uh, and then Christina Pato from uh, uh, the Spanish territory of Galicia that, um, that str- has its own struggle for identity. Yeah, absolutely. So they are all on these similar journeys. And I started to think about it. I mean, again, it's a film about culture. And you look at these cultures that have had cultural revolutions. They don't call them that by accident. The Mm. fact that all these countries had it, it had cultural revolutions is that the easiest way to subjugate somebody is to erase their culture. And I feel like in the West, and particularly in America, we treat culture as nice, you know, it's sure it's great we've got an orchestra, sure it's great we've got, you know, music education or arts education, but it doesn't feel in any way essential. And I think that's such a mistake. You're talking about these people who have been through some difficult experiences in their life, having to leave family, growing up in a culture of repression, etc. Can you tell me how you approach an interview like that where where you've got a go somewhere deep and maybe unpleasant with someone to get that story. This was probably the hardest film I've done in that respect, which is these are people who were guarded by their nature and by their experience. And But there were also people who had self-selected enough to go on this musical journey and to learn how to trust other people. I mean, Yo-Yo talks so much about trust in terms of how musicians relate with other musicians. It's very much the same between a documentarian and their subject, Hmm. but you can't just demand that trust. You have to earn that trust. So in a way, I think the four years we made the film uh, were the investment I had to make. So, you know, Kehan Kalor talking about what happened to his family in Iran in the uh, Cultural Revolution, you know, where uh, terrible tragedy strikes. I'd known him for two and a half years, maybe three years before he told me that. Mm-hmm. And most people in the ensemble didn't know or had mm-hmm. never heard it from him. He had never talked about it. And some of them were still, until they'd seen the film, they'd never seen now, did you have a sense that there's some story there and it was up to you to extract it? Yeah. I'd heard from Yo-Yo and from others that there was this tragedy buried in his story, but that he didn't speak about it. And I started to talk to him about it over time and said, you know, to really understand your journey, I need to know what happened to you. And it took a while to get there, but then by the end we got there and then when he saw the film, he you know, he was so touched and overwhelmed, hmm. but I feel like he he felt like he placed his trust, you know, rightfully. And, you know, and I tried to do best by him, but I felt it was essential to know that about him because it's, you know, essential to who he is today. So there are those types of things you have to do when you make a film, which are very, very different. Let me ask you this question about yeah. some of the other ensemble members their stories aren't as uh, on the public record or, as you say, even known to to each other. Yo-Yo Ma is someone who's been interviewed thoroughly. Does that make it more of a challenge to interview him? To me, though, even though he's been interviewed a lot, I think there's an element of his personality that hasn't been seen Hmm. that you see in the film. I mean, 
the kind of the irreverence and uh, the humor, and it's not without purpose. I think I think he's who he is because he's been who he is for so long, because he's been famous since he was seven, and because he's had to deal with being a public figure so long. He's great at making people not put him on a pedestal and really trying to kind of get all that out of the conversation immediately and just start to speak to you as a person. I mean, he's so good at that. But just that understanding of kind of what makes him tick as a person, I'd never seen that before. And not that it doesn't exist somewhere, but I felt like that was something we could bring to the film. There's a scene at the beginning of the film that's kind of the credit sequence for the film. It's a kind of epic musical performance, a large number of the Silk Road ensemble playing outdoors, the cameras weaving in and out of them. And in the film, this is the way you're kind of introducing who these characters are. Can you describe what it was like filming that? I, I'm not even sure where you filmed yeah, that. Yeah, it, it was chaos, I would say, is, is the <laughs> word. Um, it was this pop-up concert we did. There was a real pop-up show we organized uh, in Ordokoy Square in Istanbul, Turkey, right on the banks of the Bosphorus. And what you don't know, it was incredibly humid. There was a rainstorm just about to hit. Yo-Yo's Stradivarius and some of the other instruments couldn't be outside for more than 25, 30 <laughs> minutes because of the humidity. So we had a PA in an air-conditioned hotel a block away with the instruments. And then we said, okay, we have a break. The camera's set. The rain's coming. Go. And so we ran the instruments out. We had one take. We did the whole thing. I shot second camera on it. And uh, that what what we got was what you see in the film, you know, which was this spontaneous performance, but it's what they could do. And the crowd that showed up was the crowd that just happened to be there. And, uh, you know, it was just such a, I didn't know till we got back and looked at the footage, if we could actually cut it together or uh -huh. if we could cut it together as a performance, you know, because we had no real coverage and we couldn't, didn't have a second take. I mean, it was, it was tough. Um, but it was such an amazing kind of moment. And as soon as they finished, I remember this this older gentleman came up and said, uh, my daughter's getting married next week. Do you guys play weddings? A few hours after I spoke with Morgan, I sat down in a New York conference room with Yo-Yo Ma. I'd first met him briefly two years ago in Toronto while the music of Strangers was still in production. Morgan invited me to the Music Garden, a space that Yo-Yo helped design on Toronto's harbor front. At sunrise, Yo-Yo was going to perform a solo Bach piece, a scene that appears near the start of the film. I joined about a dozen friends of the project to watch, and I was impressed that Yo-Yo took time to talk to each person individually. It wasn't idle chit-chat, he showed genuine curiosity. Morgan tells me that if Yo-Yo wasn't a world-class cellist, he'd be a great documentary maker. During our sound check, Yo-Yo put a playful question to me. What's between fear and sex? I don't know. Fünf. Foof? Fünf. Eins, zwei, drei, vier, fünf, sex. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, the music of strangers, let me ask you, when this project started, what did you think it was going to be? Well, you know, what's really interesting is that I never had a hand in choosing what the narrative was going to be. You know, I knew what the project was about that had many complex layers and obviously a little bit about its history, <laughs> one that I could remember in my advanced age. <laughs> um, but but after that, it was really um, the trust in Morgan uh, to say, look, if you're the filmmaker, y you've got to find the story. It has nothing to do with what story we may want you to tell. We assume that, you know, look, this is we're an open book. You pick, you figure it out. And and that was, I think, a good way to go because it gave him the freedom to express his voice and his storytelling voice. And and we just were re really relaxed about doing our thing. And we knew that, you know, this is going to be edited and, you know, he's going to... And But what we did definitely count on was that I we could trust him all the way. He was sensitive. We knew and that, and we, how did you know you could trust him, or when did you know we, you could we were, trust him? I think we were aligned in values from seeing his previous films and talking with him that, you know, obviously he's someone that's very much pro-culture, pro-music, wanting to see good things happen, and uh, and and really is, is uh, you know, as fair-minded as, you know, as a filmmaker, journalist can be in, in terms of you know, telling a story, and and we wanted for him to keep that uh, fair-mindedness without getting too close during the filming process. And now that it's over, you know, all hell breaks loose. One thing Morgan said to me is that he sees you as someone who likes to deflect attention to other people, and in this film, some attention has to be paid to you. There, uh, the crux of this film is you having this midlife crisis that led to you uh, led led you on the road to forming the Silk Road Ensemble. Uh, what was that like for you to kind of have that attention paid to you in this film? For me, I don't find myself that interesting because <laughs> I know what I'm about. <laughs> and, and, you know, I have enough of a life where I don't feel like people need to know about me. And in fact, I think I can do my best work if things are not focused on me, but that they're actually focused on the work or, mm. or on the mm. people doing the work. And so so I was happy to participate in sort of saying, well, you know, yeah, this is me. You know, I did this, I did that. and But really the story is about, like, what's happening right now. And and for me, the issues that are happening now, uh, in, a, in a way, in a sensitively told Neville way of a post-9-11 world into the Syrian crisis, uh, we're dealing with, with a lot of discomfort in the world, a lot of fear and a huge amount of change that is maybe even at the beginning of the change and we have no idea where it's going to be, which leaves a lot of people frightened. Well, I think one of the things this film does is put a human face on people who have gone through these different experiences, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, the Iranian Revolution, the Syrian upheaval, and uh, the people who are members of Zilk Road Ensemble. I wonder, in watching the film, did you learn more about your colleagues in, in the group? Absolutely. Like, for the first time, I heard, and it was deeply moving, I knew the story, but I never heard Kehan express what had actually happened to his family. 
and when you know a missile hit um, a car that his parents and brother were driving and they were all killed and so since he was a teenager he was essentially uh, without a, um, a nuclear family uh, in his life and he basically wandered the world uh, until when we met him in 2000 uh, and that was the beginning of where at least I think he feels that in this group there's a cultural home that that he you know that he can rely on and that people will pay attention and know always where he is and what he's thinking and what and I think that's that degree of 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 support and and camaraderie and and friendship is I think is so incredibly important to the well-being of of any person let alone um, any um, you know, expressive person. Now, in the film, you talk about building trust with the musicians and the importance of trust between musicians. In a group like the Silk Road Ensemble, where there's many more members than what we even see in the film, how do you establish that trust when when you bring in someone? I think, um, well, just like a family, you know, every single member of a family views the family differently. <laughs> you go through family oral history and so so what were your parents like <laughs> and to the sibling and so what were your parents like <laughs> you're going to get very different narratives and i think um so it's really it's easy and it's hard the easy part is to pay attention to listen carefully to listen to watch and to figure out what makes someone's life function and what is missing what is suddenly missing what can be helpful and uh and for everybody it's something different at different times and just being able to recognize that is the first step of building trust oh my gosh so and so cared enough to notice and and is paying attention even if you can't do you know much to help that kind of acknowledgement is i think uh, makes a difference. People are known as individuals. I want to ask you about your listening skills. We met briefly two years ago for the first time during the making of Music of Strangers. I saw you last year at the Toronto Film Festival, and when you walked in the room today, you remembered us meeting two years ago. And you know, I know that you're someone who meets thousands of people uh, every year, and I feel like you've got that ability that I've heard people describe Bill Clinton having, it's being able to lock into the person in front of you and really concentrate uh, on that person. And I wonder, is that something that you learned over the years, or does it just come natural? Um, that, that's a very good question, because I think it's quite selective, and there are many things and you just talk to my wife and you'll realize the depth of the truth of what I'm telling you, uh, that what I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> because she remembers a whole lot of different things and forgets also a lot of things. We just have complementary hmm. selective memories. So, this, so that's very interesting. For me, it's the connectivity issue. And so I saw you at the Music Garden, obviously 
I was impressed because really early in the morning, right? <laughs> it was at <laughs> so, dawn. Yeah, yeah, like what in the world were you doing up that early? That made an impression. But you were part of a small group of filmic people that, you know, associated with a place that meant a lot to me. Just the, the cumulative layered memories of that place and that moment. I did something when I was about 30, you know, I would look back at the end of a year and would realize that I would draw a blank on like nine months of it. Mm. If you don't remember a life, is it really worth living, mm. right? So I do try and say, if there's any possibility of trying to do things that are meaningful and to make that more in your life than the things that are less meaningful, then you end up remembering more of it and you end up having a more meaningful life. Well, part of what you're talking about is like locking into people in a meaningful way. And I think that there must be some corollary to locking into music in a meaningful way. So the day that you're describing when we were at Toronto's Music Garden struck me that morning that you locked into playing a piece. Have you kind of trained yourself to lock into music? Also a really good question. I think uh, for me, the essence of playing music is to, in fact, exactly as you said, lock into uh, a state of mind. You know, I think there's a particular state of mind uh, for performance, and there's a particular, you know, a subset of that state of mind for to represent and advocate for a world that a piece of music represents. So if you're in that state of mind, and this is where, as a classical musician, I learned from people who are more in the folk idiom that they totally own what they play. So in essence, they can't make mistakes. Hmm. Hmm. You know, whatever they do <laughs> is true. And for someone like me, and as someone I find I feel like that doesn't carry over in the classical well, world. Well, you see, I finally figured that out uh, one day, like probably in my 40s, when somebody asked in Ozawa Hall at a, you know, just a question and answer session at Tanglewood, the summer home of the Boston Symphony, uh, says, so tell me, you know, you've played the Dvorak cello concerto, you know, hundreds of times, maybe even thousands of times. What, you know, what to you is, is, uh, authentic, what are you thinking about, and whatever. That's when I first hit on the, this is the state of mind, because I just realized that about, you know, folk traditions. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what, I actually, I feel that this piece of music is totally part of me, which means that it has infinite ways to be able to, you know, be performed. Mm -hmm. I'm not locked into the notes, the notes come out, you know, as if, I'd written them and I feel total freedom if something happens to change it at the moment because it is it fits the narrative of the mm. moment. And I can report to you that the difference between playing a performance when you're afraid and you kind of make it and you know, even if everything's right, the feeling of total exhaustion at the end versus playing it full out, mm. totally loving it, 
giving everything, you know, messing up things, whatever. Mm-hmm. And but you're in the pocket, you're in the spirit. You've de- delivered your all. You have plenty of energy left at the end. I want to thank Yo-Yo Ma and Morgan Neville for talking to me and for their film, The Music of Strangers. It's playing in theaters this summer and comes to HBO next year. On our next episode, I talk to David Ferrier and Dylan Reeve, the directors behind one of this year's strangest documentaries, Tickled. It starts out as a lighthearted look at tickling fetish videos and turns into a murky investigation full of twists and turns. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer Kyle Murphy, marketing coordinator Sarah Modo, and executive producer Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. If you like what you've heard, the best way to support us is to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review, even a short one. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.